0: place where we remember the past to give meaning to the present and educate for the future. My name is Sean, and I'm your host for this podcast. So I realize it's been quite some time since my last episode. The summer's been quite busy with various other projects and jobs. Needless to say, I thank you listeners for your patience. If you've been following along this series, I've taken a tour throughout the greater Chicago area looking at memorial spaces for different immigrant communities. Specifically, I've chosen to focus on peoples who experienced mass violence and genocide as part of their journey to America, and I've been looking at the way spaces in the built environment help these communities make sense of past traumas and strengthen those communal bonds. In previous episodes, we visited the Illinois Holocaust Museum in Skokie, where I learned how at least two distinct memorial rooms in the building served to complement the museum exhibition. We then traveled to the National Cambodian Heritage Museum in Chicago where we observed how the Cambodian community uses a hybrid of cultural and religious motifs adapted to an American setting to honor their lost loved ones from the Khmer Rouge genocide. From there, we went to St. Andrew's Ukrainian Orthodox Church in the west suburb of Bloomingdale to observe how the famine memorial and the church space itself provides a space for Ukrainian Americans to preserve their heritage and ensure a commitment to truth in the face of ignorance and denial. We'll now be looking at a monument dedicated to a lesser-known, yet deeply fascinating, and historical people group here in the Chicago area. These are the Assyrian people of the Middle East. use the name Assyrian with Syrian, as in the nation of Syria, because there are clear differences. Assyrians are not an Arab group, in fact, they are an indigenous people group to the Middle East, dating back literally thousands of years. For listeners who grew up within the Judeo-Christian faith traditions, you may recall the Assyrian Empire from Biblical times with their ancient capital of Nineveh, close to what's present day Mosul, Iraq. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that the Assyrians were the nation that God sent the prophet Jonah to preach repentance. King Sargon of Assyria was responsible for destroying the northern kingdom of Israel, and Sennacherib was famously known for threatening King Hezekiah, of the southern kingdom of Judah. And Since the collapse of the Assyrian Empire in the 7th century BC, the Assyrians never had a nation-state, but the people have lived on for thousands of years to the present day. Assyrians were among the first peoples to adopt Christianity. They continued to speak dialects of Aramaic, which is the closest to what people in first century Palestine would have spoken. They maintained their own culture and languages despite continual invasions of Arabs, Turks, and other migrating people over the centuries. As such, they've been an important yet vulnerable minority population in the Middle East for most of modern history. They live scattered throughout what is now Eastern Turkey, northern Syria, Iraq, Iran, and other parts of the Middle East. During World War I, most Assyrians lived under the Turkish rule of the Ottoman Empire, with its historic capital at Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul. During this turbulent time, the Assyrians, along with other Christian minority groups such as Armenians and Pontic Greeks, were subjected to deportations, indiscriminate violence, and massacres, and genocide dating from about 1915 lasting through the first part of the 1920s after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the creation of the modern state of Turkey. Now the causes of this genocide involve a lot of geopolitical issues, including imperialism of Western European powers, as well as long-standing religious and ethnic animosities. And to go into all of these causes would take up too much time for our purposes, unfortunately. But you may have heard of this genocide as the Armenian Genocide, which is considered by many historians as the precursor to the Holocaust in the first quote-unquote modern genocide. Now that term is certainly not inaccurate. There is enough evidence to show that the Armenians were specifically targeted by the Turkish government as a threat, leading to the extermination of 1.5 million Armenians. However, people too often forget that Armenians were not the only people murdered by the Turkish so-called Committee of Union and Progress. Because they were Christian minorities, Assyrians and Greeks in the Ottoman Empire also occupied an other category, making them easy targets of indiscriminate violence. Some 500,000 Assyrians were slaughtered or starved in conjunction with the Armenians. Many of those who survived or escaped sought refuge in the United States, where Chicago became a major haven for Assyrian emigres. And today, the greater Chicago area is home to one of the largest Assyrian diaspora communities, with estimates at over 100,000 people. In Montrose Cemetery, a historic cemetery located on the northwest side of Chicago, there is a rather large memorial dedicated to the Assyrian martyrs from that genocide. It's connected to a series of other memorials and graves, related to religious figures in the Assyrian Church of the East, so I might even describe this space as a memorial park of sorts. Some pictures of the memorial will be located in some of the links provided in this episode's description. With me for this episode are two notable activists within the Assyrian community. They'll each be sharing with me some insight and perspective on the Assyrian-American experience. One is Joseph Hermes, who is from University of Chicago's Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations Department.
1: My name is Joe Hermes. Uh, I am a PhD student in uh, Middle Eastern History at the University of Chicago. Uh, I have been in Chicago now for four years. I'm not a native of Chicago, though. I was uh, originally born in uh, Midland, Texas, a small town uh, in West Texas there. And uh, uh, my family uh, relocated to the Phoenix area about 20 years ago and about four years ago I started my graduate work here at the, uh, the University of Chicago in Middle Eastern Studies and now I currently work on uh, late Autumn, the history of the late Ottoman Empire and modern Middle Eastern history with a, sp- with a special focus on uh, Assyrians uh, during the World War One post-World War I period.
0: I also have with me Joseph Tamraz who is a leading member and executive in various community organizations including the Assyrian Universal Alliance, as well as the Assyrian American Civic Club.
2: I moved to United States in 1975. Um, and after, actually I came to 75, I graduated from high school, but 79, and I came here in Chicago. Uh, I live um, in the north side of Chicago uh, since. And, um, you know, I went to school to uh, UIC and uh, with uh, electronic uh, engineer, you know, and so I work for Motorola. role about 20 years, and have been involved with the Assyrian community and also with the American communities.
0: Joseph Tamraz provided some knowledge about the migration patterns of Assyrians in the U.S.
2: Assyrians, you know, came in the uh, United States in early uh, uh, ages, you know, mostly like late uh, eighteen hundred to start coming up uh, in uh, United States. And they, they started uh, basically a lot closer to uh, Eastern, you know, to like Philadelphia and uh, 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 those area, and but after that they start moving to like Chicago land because uh, Chicago uh, used to be uh, really good with the working uh, and things like that. So they start coming over here, and um, we've been here uh, since. And uh, you know we have uh, so many churches, so many organizations uh, have been built uh, since then.
0: Joe Hermes provided some historical context for what circumstances Assyrians faced that influenced their decision to move to America. He also shows how from the early years, Assyrian Americans were already creating community organizations.
1: So you had in 1895, the massacres of Diyarbakir, um, which drove many Western Assyrians. Uh, those are Assyrians belonging to the Jacobite or what we now today call the Syrian Orthodox Church.
0: And this is in modern day Iraq. A modern day Turkey. Turkey. Yes,
1: Yeah. so these are the Hamidian massacres. Um, usually, oftentimes they're framed Um, uh, because the Armenian community was particularly affected by this and it also drove their migration to the United States and other parts of the world Uh, and you see the settlement of uh, Western Assyrians uh, in Massachusetts New England area generally and among the oldest Assyrian organizations in existence are are those organizations so for example there was the Assyrian uh, School and Orphanage Association uh, in uh, Assyrian it's called Taumim Simket which was established, I believe, in 1897 uh, by Assyrian immigrants and some who had previously been in the United States, and that organization is still in existence today, and it supports the, originally it was uh, intended to support the Adana uh, Assyrian orphanage in Turkey, uh, and later uh, it uh, took on the responsibility of Assyrian orphanages in Lebanon and in Syria, uh, and, um, and then later uh, there were also Assyrian economic migrants who came from Iran, Uh, And those are the ones who predominantly emigrated to the Chicago area. Uh, There was uh, a study that was done in 1921 or 1922 by a graduate student at the University of Chicago named Edith Edith Stein, uh, where she actually sort of went into interviewing Assyrian families that were living in Chicago at the time. Uh, and it's, it's an interesting study. It's a bit anachronistic in some of its like, language, but I think its, it's data and um, some of the information that you can glean from the interviews are, are somewhat useful in sort of understanding uh, the way the community situated itself here in Chicago. Uh, they mostly worked in the service industries, uh, industry jobs and whatnot. There were also professionals. Uh, one of the earliest community leaders here in Chicago was uh, an individual named uh, Dr. Jesse Malik Yonan. In uh, Assyrian, he was called Hakim Ishe. Um, and he also ended up serving as a delegate uh, for the uh, delegate of the Assyrians of uh, Ormia Salamas uh, and Soldus uh, at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919 Uh, so uh, there's always been sort of a a vibrant community here in Chicago for some time uh, and you know grew from a small community of maybe a thousand in the pre-war period to possibly well over a hundred thousand today
0: Wow. And it seems to me that it's still pretty diverse as a community, just, you know, you have all the different, um, you know, religious denominations, as well as um, different um, linguistics, uh, you know, the the Eastern dialects and the Western dialects, as well as even just regionally, geographically, where people are coming from and when they came to the United States. So um, could you tell me a little bit about how that has um, played out in an an American context and has the... um, how the Assyrian community, as as a whole, has been able to kind of come together um, in exile, so to speak.
2: Yeah. Well, basically, like you mentioned, that's uh, what it started. It, but again, after that, you know, we have with the recent uh, um, situation going on in Middle Eastern, because, uh, uh, like Johan mentioned, Assyrians live in uh, those countries in Middle Eastern countries, and you see, uh, in uh, lately, you know, we have so many uh, things going on with uh, in Middle Eastern country you know it started with uh, um, even like Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq you know, all those countries that we had Assyrians living there there was uh, things going on that it made Assyrians leave those countries because it started becoming dangerous for them to leave and just to have their families uh, especially for the, for the kids uh, to live in those countries and uh, uh, so they moved out of those countries and they start coming up to uh, uh, America and the European countries. And a lot of them they came here to the United States because some of them they had a family. Uh, so their the family they brought them in and some of them they went to uh, uh, United Nations and uh, went to the refugee status and, uh, 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 and they came to United States. And um, Syrians, there are kind of like uh, with the family, you know, that's what we think. So that's why uh, they try to go to the countries or the cities that they have families and, uh, and members of the other uh, communities living there. That's why like I said, you know, we have a lot of them that came here in Chicago because there was a huge community of Assyrians living in Chicago. That's one of the strongest Think about the Assyrians. We want to keep uh, close to each other, keep our uh, culture and heritage and language and everything like that. Even that's why you know, we have with the uh, some of our organization, they are working within the community, and we're working outside the communities. And uh, uh, like you know, we have organizations that we participate at, like a parade and festivals. That uh, it's not just for uh, uh, for the Syrian; it's for all uh, American, you know, and all the people that uh, live in La Forest City, Chicago, and, uh, and surrounding that. That's why we want to. Uh, tell them about our culture our language and our, our, our heritage uh, so uh, that's why we keep it close to each other even uh, even with the political things we try to be closer with uh, our officials with uh, you know helping the candidate uh, to tell them who are we and where we come from and so another thing I think uh, Joe he will agree with me a lot of times people they say when we say Syrian Syrian you know we have to say okay <laughs> go back you know some of us might come from the Syria but we're not Syrian we are Assyrian and we have to go back and I explain it to them
1: definitely I mean I think Joseph is pointing on uh, is something that's uh, uh, you know very important sort of in understanding the the Assyrian case with many other you know migrant communities that have come to the United States is that there's constantly been this negotiating uh, their own identity their own their own situ- you know situation here in the United States and that goes back even to the early immigrant community here to the early Assyrian immigrant population here in Chicago uh, so for example uh, the community um, you know then when, you know, when they first came to Chicago, um, there was many attempts to sort of, pr- you know, uh, prove their Americanness. So you read like the Syrian American Herald, which was published here in Chicago, from 1915 to 1921. You see these attempts at promoting the sale of like, you know, war bonds and whatnot, and improving their Americanness so that they'd be, you know, better be able to, to you know, fit into the larger fabric of society. But at the same time. The uh, the American situation in the United States also created a new forum for negotiating Assyrian identity within the community. So, for example, you have in 1914 uh, in New York the meet you know what was titled then the meeting between the Ottoman and Persian Assyrians, um, and, and what they actually mean here is a meeting uh, between Eastern and Western Assyrians. These are Assyrians of the Eastern Assyrians belonging to the Church of the East, but also possibly like the Chaldean Catholic Church and the Presbyterian Churches, um, these were mostly Assyrians from uh, Iran and then the Assyrians from Harput, which is in Turkey and other parts of uh, Turkey as well, these are the Western Assyrians um, and there was a meeting in 1914 to sort of bringing, bring these two groups together and uh, from that union uh, the Assyrian National Associations uh, of the United States was established Uh, which was um, sort of an umbrella organization to serve the interests of the Assyrian community here in the United States, but also be a political voice for uh, Assyrians in the Middle East as well. So you see that this was sort of not possible uh, at the time in the Middle East, um, not only because of sort of violence or war, but also because uh, the the sort of governmental structures of the the Ottoman Empire uh, essentially reserved all political power and control to Uh, patriarchs under the Millet system and so there was um, uh, there was much more democratic freedom and sort of uh, sort of bottom-up political organization and mobilization that was taking place in the United States that sort of redefined what being Assyrian was and um, in the the context of the United States it was this sort of multi-denominational and grassroots sort of uh, Assyrian uh, sort of community organizing and also
0: community identity as well so based on what Joe Hermes explained, a new American setting actually provided new ways to perhaps enrich the Assyrian identity across different religious denominations, linguistic differences, and government barriers. The emergence of Assyrian organizations in the U.S. seem to have democratized the process a bit more, and I think this idea provides a good segue to discussing one of the physical manifestations of Assyrian American identity. This is, of course, the Assyrian genocide memorial located in Chicago's Montrose Cemetery. Joseph Tamraz provides some background to its creation and why the monument was built.
2: In 2000, uh, uh, Dr. Norman Sulha, you know, he came up uh, to uh, build that monument and donated it to the Assyrian community in Chicagoland. And uh, unfortunately, in the Chicago area, you're not able to put such, such monument in public places. So that's why we had to put it in a cemetery. Uh, so that's why it was uh, 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 put in a cemetery and was um, selected in Montrose Cemetery, which is, uh, has a huge um, Assyrian um, people. Uh, um, they, they're uh, like uh, last homes in you know, there. So that's why you know, it's, it's that area, it's closer to um, part of the Assyrian uh, section of the uh, Montrose Cemetery. And at the beginning it was the uh, one monument put in there, and then uh, it wasn't like I mentioned. Uh, 2000 started that, and after that he add two more uh, wings to that, and uh, just uh, and uh, last year he add two more wings. So now it has four wings uh, to that monument, and uh, basically uh, it's a final uh, uh, part of that. Uh, so and um, it does, you know, uh, we do uh, kind of like because of uh, uh, Martyrs' Day, we can say we celebrate that day because uh, we recognizing that the people, Syrian people, they died for uh, Syrianism, uh, for the, the things that they, today we are alive. We can say we are Assyrians. Mm-hmm. And that's the main thing. It's about the Syrian martyrs. Those ones, um, uh, it's order. And that's why in uh, August 7, which is at, uh, in, in 1968, uh, it uh, it was recognized as a Syrian Martyr, martyr's days and being uh, recognized all around the world and everybody in all the countries, they recognizing that day as uh, uh, a martyr's days and celebrating that. Uh, we, we can say it was celebrating because it's uh, uh, martyrs, they're always, we could call it, they're alive, okay, because for the, the missions that they had, they get killed, they get, uh, they gave their life for um, um, us to be able to uh, say we are Syrians all around the world. So that's what those are mart- uh, monuments there. We have uh, events always celebrating in that day, you know. So um, it has um, a lot of meaning to that. and. I hope I I'll be able to uh, publish uh, a kind of a like booklet and explain everything in details. Um, pretty soon it would be really good. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Again, just as a reminder, you can find links to photographs I took of the memorial in the episode description. I'll pause here for a moment to give a verbal description of the monument site itself. So the centerpiece of the memorial is a black obelisk with a light stone base. This is the original part of the memorial erected in 2000. In both English and Assyrian, which uses Arabic script, uh, the obelisk reads, In Memoriam of Assyrian Martyrs, beneath which is an image of a flame. The white pedestal reads, erected during the Patriarchate of Mar Dinka IV, Catholicos Patriarch of the Church of the East, dedicated by Dr. Norman Sulcha, presented to the Assyrian American National Federation. On either side of the black obelisk are two black stone slabs, with tops angled toward the center obelisk, so four slabs total. What's interesting about this memorial that makes it distinct from memorials I've talked about in previous episodes is the textual evidence they contain. Starting with the outermost slabs, the first and the fourth slabs, both read Assyrian, Armenian, and Greek Genocide, 1915-1921. to The first slab on the left contains six images showing the atrocities committed by the Turkish army to these minority populations. Some of them are quite graphic, showing things like skeletons and emaciated bodies. The opposite slab on the right contains more images from the genocide, and it also has etched into the stone a full transcription of a letter by the American consul in Trebizond detailing massacres of the Christian civilians in eastern Turkey. On the interior slabs, so the second and the third one, there is a comprehensive list of the Assyrian villages wiped out during the genocide, each organized within the various provinces. According to the monument, some 950 Assyrian villages and communities were destroyed by Turks and Kurds, resulting in about 500,000 Assyrian deaths. This list continues on both sides of the slab. The third slab serves a similar function, but it lists all the villages and communities destroyed or displaced in Persia, or modern-day Iran. So to recap, the actual genocide memorial consists only of the black obelisk and those four surrounding slabs. But as I mentioned before, uh, this memorial exists within a much larger memorial park space in, the, in that Montrose Cemetery. Many of these monuments that have been added over many years acknowledge other heroes of the Assyrian people and diaspora. The inclusion of these other martyrs also helped illustrate a longer and even ongoing struggle for the Assyrian community to survive in their homeland since the 20th and 21st centuries. While an outsider like myself can certainly visit the memorial and learn about what the Assyrian community values, especially with respect to their Christian faith, this space primarily serves the inside community as Assyrian Americans navigate uh, at this space between their ethnic identity and their own Americanness. As Joseph Tamraz mentioned earlier, the most significant event at the memorial occurs on August 7th, which is considered Assyrian Martyrs Day. And speaking of August 7th, Joe, would you just mind sh- um, sharing for listeners just a bit of historical context of what August 7th, 1933 was all about and why it Became such a pivotal moment in modern Assyrian history.
1: Sure. So, and it's very important to note here that uh, the August 7, 1933, or what they call the Semele massacre, or the Assyrian affair, um, you know, it it wouldn't have had, I mean, it goes back also to the genocide of the First World Mm -hmm. War. I mean, and and I'll explain here shortly. So, uh, the, the Assyrian genocide as we know it uh, that occurred in the Ottoman Empire during the First World War starting in approximately 1915 and lasting through uh, 1925 uh, essentially shattered the political and cultural unity of the various Assyrian denominations within the Ottoman Empire. Um, it was a, you know, it, because it is a very understudied area, I mean compared to for example like the Armenian Genocide um, you had different sort of episodes of violence that occurred during that period. So for example you had the Assyrians of the Hekari region in eastern Turkey that, were, that took the side of the Russians during the war. I mean there was a sort of growing, growing distrust of the Ottoman government that they would be massacred. Uh, and you see that the Ottoman forces repelled them out of the Hekari region. They ended up settling in Iran, where they were not welcomed by the Persian government, not welcomed by the Turkish, uh, by the Turkish, popul- the Azari population of uh, Azerbaijan, um, which is where Assyrians predominantly were located in Ormia and the surrounding areas. And then you also had the sort of indiscriminate killing of Assyrians in places like Mardin, Diyarbakir, uh, Urfa. And these are all places that are
0: now eastern Turkey. Exactly,
1: yeah. This is all eastern Anatolia. And so you had Assyrians who were casualties of violence that was being committed against Armenians uh, because there were deportation orders that were issued against Armenians to drive them out of the Ottoman Empire. While Assyrians were not necessarily named specifically in those, uh, and many times the patriarchs tried to negotiate uh, the Assyrians in prior years, like during the Hamidian massacres, to uh, essentially allow the Assyrians to not be affected by this sort of uh, political violence, political and religious violence. Uh, what, uh, you know, so the Assyrian case it, you know, has many many different facets, but essentially what happened is the Assyrians that were driven out of the Hekadi region into Iran, uh, they were from Iran driven out by Ottoman forces, um, into, and, and they fled into Bakuba, which is in Iraq today, and they settled in the refugee camp there. Um, and uh, with the, you know, the, mandate, the British mandate over Iraq, there was a growing distrust of the Assyrian population there, uh, those who had settled there uh, who had come from Hakadi through Iran into Iraq. And um, there was growing distrust, especially with the rise of Arab nationalism and whatnot in the country, uh, and the, the fact that the Assyrians were also recruited into uh, the levy system, the British levy system. So they were being used as a, a fighting force against to quell political rebellions. Uh, by the British, so they were being seen as like tools of a foreign Western power. Um, And then uh, essentially in 1933 what happened was um, Assyrians had crossed over into Syria to try to uh, essentially settle on the banks of the Khabar region. And upon their re-entrance they were being refused, the Assyrian generals were being refused uh, re-entrance into Iraq. Some sort of skirmish occurred. Um, There was an outbreak of violence, and then the uh, Iraqi army uh, under the leadership of Bakr Sitki uh, perpetuated uh, just sort of whole killings in in various villages. I mean, it wasn't only reserved to the village of Semele, but it was also surrounding villages in northern Iraq that many innocent men, women, and children were killed. Um, And it became really a defining moment for the Iraqi state as well. And and there's now been sort of a reopening of this discussion. I, I saw recently in the National Review um, there was the discussion of um, the uh, the Simele massacre of 1933, and um, it's sort of the logic of violence that was perpetuated against the Syrians by the Iraqi state in Raphael Lemkin's mm-hmm. framing of uh, his thoughts on, on on genocide and its definition and its effects, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and you know it's sort of an untold part of uh, sort of Raphael Lemkin, who was yeah. very very
0: instrumental in sort of framing our understanding of of genocide studies. And of course, Raphael Lemkin, for, for listeners who may not know, is the one who coined the term genocide. Exactly,
1: yeah. yeah. And so it, it fits, I mean, all of these things are sort of interconnected and, um, uh, and, and really, one, require much, m- much further study, uh, much deeper engagement with Assyrian sources, with other uh, sources on an academic level. Um, and then, sort of, uh, you know, for political activists, I mean, I think, uh, you know, raising awareness of these issues and, and you know, talking about the monument, um, y- you know, I think it, there's a word to be, you know, something that needs to be said here because the first monument that was actually erected, uh, de- you know, dedicated to the people who lost their lives during the First World War actually was in 1920, and it was established by the Assyrian general Achapatros Patros, and he led the Assyrian forces of Iran during the war. And uh, he he paid for a monument to be established in the Bakuba refugee camp. It was later destroyed, uh, but that was the first monument that we know of. Um, but then, for you know, almost 100 years, there was no genocide monuments to speak of uh, for the Assyrians. It, it was really a, a trend that started in the in I want to say the early 90s of sort of reopening this discussion about Assyrian genocide and about Assyrian uh, you know persecution that occurred in the 20th centuries, uh, 20th century. So, and essentially, August 7th went from being a day uh, that commemorated the, the loss of Assyrian life uh, in the Semel massacre to sort of incorporating it into a larger narrative mm. of violence that has been committed against the Syrian community. And you see this constantly in all the monuments that have since popped up. Um, uh, you know, in the, United, in the United States, I think only uh, in Chicago and Massachusetts actually have official monuments. I'm not wow. sure of anywhere else in the United States or Canada, but Europe there are many of them. Yeah. Um, and uh, there is actually even one in Turkey as well, in Diyarbakir Becker, um, that was established by the, uh, uh, you know, the local government there. Mm. Um, but uh, you see this sort of incorporation of the, you know, taking up public space. Um, and, and and sort of telling the Assyrian story through these monuments, not yeah. as sort of one episodic one episode, right. but as in the Armenian case, or in, as in the Jewish case with the Holocaust, but seeing it as a much sort of continuous sort of yeah. history of violence mm-hmm. against this community, which I think it makes the Assyrian case unique.
0: And as as you were saying earlier, Joe, like this is a very understudied um, topic in um, you know Assyrian history, especially, but just even brought, more broadly speaking, you know. You know, even because this is still, I would consider this part of American history, part of that American story of, you know, these these diaspora communities, you know, continuing on that story and and um, you know that that mandate of sorts to to remember and you know, and you and you can also see here the the sort of non-exclusivist sort of
1: narrative right. that's being told right. here. That is often the case. Um, you know, uh, I think uh, I, I, I can't remember the the full, I think it's. Bernard Hen- Henry Lavey, uh, the French philosopher, and he talks about sort of the concurrence uh, de victimes, which is like the the co- the competition of victims when, when it comes to these sorts yeah. of things. That uh, and you see that the Assyrian, Armenian, and Greeks are also mm. sort of acknowledged together here. Yeah. Which um, uh, you know for a long time the Assyrian genocide narrative was excluded from uh, the Armenian mm-hmm. uh, from what was then you know obviously called the Armenian genocide, yeah. and and you and this was also even contemporaneously at the time, Assyrians in the United States were publishing and talking about the fact that you know the American press and uh, these foreign, uh, these Western European powers that were now sitting in Paris and about to decide the future of the world. Uh, they talk about Armenia and they talk about the Armenians, but they're not talking about the Assyrians. Um, uh, and and this is sort of um, this has been a c- continuing tradition for the Assyrians that sort of trying to insert their voice uh, that has been excluded and then when they do have an opportunity to you know express uh, themselves I mean it's usually not very very much in exclusivist terms I mean it's it trying to be inclusive and um, this uh, sort of coalition uh, of victims mm-hmm. and it also you know because it is there are many factors to this the fact that Armenians were um, Sort of better organized and sort of preserving uh, oral histories and documents and whatnot, and and sort of also being active in uh, academia, they were able to sort of catapult. And it was not this was not an easy sort of trajectory for the community. It took mm-hmm. quite a bit of time, um, but they were able to sort of uh, solidify their own ground within uh, sort of the the history of the you know the genocide itself. But uh, you know it was certainly exclusivist for a long time, but we're starting to see that change now. And I, I listened to your podcast on the, the Holocaust Museum, and they seem to be wanting to incorporate the voices of different victims, even of other mm-hmm. sort of periods of, uh, of persecution and violence. And um, and we're seeing that as well now with the Armenian community um, throughout the United States, for example, like Armenian and Assyrian groups and Greek groups as well, Pontic Greek groups, mm-hmm. are, are working together um, in terms of uh, you know not only recognizing the genocide itself but also sort of understanding uh, these histories of like
2: victimhood. Through trying to you know work with the Greek and uh, Armenian communities closer, and uh, to come up with some events. Um, for instance, uh, there was uh, uh, last year there you know, was a big uh, uh, demonstration downtown Chicago, uh, Armenian they had. Um, we as a Syrian uh, participate with them too, uh, you know, and uh, also in a lot of our events that we have uh, at uh, Montrose Cemetery. We have uh, Greek and uh, uh, Armenian uh, people that came and even they spoke uh, at the events as well. Because uh, there are things that we have, uh, there are some common things that uh, we're sharing and we try to work it, uh, especially like uh, Joey mentioned, uh, Armenian, you know, and uh, they have a little bit uh, better uh, or maybe advanced, in, in us so that's what we're trying to do we're trying to learn what they, what they did and we can continue uh, built build on that uh, for our cases as well mm-hmm. that's why now um uh, our genocide has been recognized in uh, several countries and we we're trying to uh work on that uh, and, and to be able to uh, work with with, the, with our people and also with the, with the people that live in those countries and uh, hopefully, we'll be able to do that in larger capacity uh, with the nationwide and uh, internationally uh, to be, uh, uh, these days, be recognized as a, uh, a genocide for Assyrians that it happens. Mm.
0: Joe and Joseph both recognize the challenges of building a coalition to recognize the Assyrian genocide. The monument is a great space for starting this momentum, but obviously, it doesn't end there. I concluded our conversation by asking them what the future may hold in terms of creating more awareness and support in the general community for human rights issues.
2: We uh, as a Facilitation community we were kind of like uh, a little bit behind from uh, our Greek or uh, Armenian and even in this case with the, uh, with the uh, Jewish community as well, you know, they, they have, um, even here uh, in Chicagoland, they have a big uh, uh, you know, Holocaust museum in Skokie. Um, So, maybe we can learn from them, what the step that they took, which uh, one works, which one doesn't work. Uh, We we have to work with uh, a community outside of uh, uh, Assyrians, Um, because Assyrians, the older generation, they know about it, and then uh, the next step is going to be with the general population, uh, where we live uh, in like Chicagoland and uh, uh, some other uh, cities in uh, part of the United States. I mean I think one of the most uh, important things the Assyrian community uh, should
1: look to is uh, sort of collaboration with other I mean I mean we're right here in the United States I mean Native American populations have been you know faced you know, I mean uh, arguably genocide as well I mean right I mean uh, and, and and relocations, I mean many many different sort of forms of suffering that they've undergone in, in the history of this country and so I think greater uh, sort of collaboration and understanding bridge building between like communities here in the United States and the Assyrian community is really the first place to go I mean uh, and, and because not only does it sort of help us to understand how violence takes various forms, how it affects various communities, how it's uh, instigated by various sort of reasons, whether it's religious, political, um, economic, whatever it may be, uh, I think greater collaboration between uh, peoples who have histories of sort of mass violence, persecution, genocide, working together understanding their narratives, um, and, and I think sort of building this more broader coalition is is one step to take, uh, and I think that um, will serve all the communities much better uh, in terms of understanding but then also i think it also will bring these sort of episodes of violence into the greater consciousness uh, of the american public and understanding you know that violence isn't just something that happens in the middle east uh, but it's also something that happens in the united states it happens in western europe it happens in other parts of the world yeah. um you know and so that it, it's not just to say that it can never happen here um you know it's and i think that's an important aspect too.
0: I'm encouraged by Joe Hermes and Joseph Tamaras' desire to involve and educate a wider public by showing how conflicts that occurred in other parts of the world have direct lessons for our lives here in America. As we have explored various genocide memorials throughout Chicagoland in these podcast episodes, I hope I have encouraged listeners to take notice of the people and groups in your neighborhoods and what stories they have to tell. I found the communities featured here through the spaces of memory they created but I'm sure there are many other communities who struggle even having a space or a platform to share their story. So by taking this comparative approach, I hope that this podcast might be a small stepping stone in helping communities better integrate as we seek to make our world value human life. There's so much more that I would like to talk about, but for time's sake, I think we'll conclude on this encouraging note. If you'd like to continue the conversation or provide feedback, Feel free to message me on Twitter at handlebar Sean T. Jacobson, or you can email me at sjacobson1 at luc.edu. Royalty free music is provided by Les Hayden, L. E. Calif, Kevin McLeod, and Vortex. This podcast has been produced and edited by Sean Jacobson. Audio recording equipment is courtesy of Loyola University's Digital Media Lab. Thanks for listening.